From understanding the news of today to explaining principles which will last a lifetime, you're listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, equipping pastors and church leaders across rural America and beyond to meet the challenges of ministry while advancing the kingdom of God in your local community and in our world. I am here with pastors Mel Massengale and Todd Stanley. Hello. Here we are again. All right, so I want to talk a little, little bit. I almost said little. Like a little I'm, bit. A little, a little bit. <laughs> Scottish. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about false teachers. And so I want to know... Who they are? I've got a list. I'm ready. Yep. Yeah. There we go. I actually had somebody in our church. I, met, I talked about false false prophets. Uh, we were going through Second Peter, and I was talking about false prophets. And I didn't name any by name, <laughs> but I made the comment that... Some of you are watching them on yeah. online right now, and so I had—I bet I had five different people come up to me and go, "Okay, who are they? Who are they? <laughs> tell me who they are." And I, I wouldn't make them a list, but I'd say, "Well, tell me who you like, and I'll tell you if I have a problem with them and why I do." And so I had a few that said, "What about?" Yeah, I'm not yeah. a big fan. Let <laughs> yeah. me tell you about why I'm not a big fan. So sorry, we're not making lists. So, uh, what are some qualities that you look for to delineate good teachers from false teachers? We'll start there. Humility. Humility. First and foremost in my mind is humility. Yeah. If if you are unwilling to be challenged on something that you have said, mm-hmm. if you uh, seem to come from a position of that all of your answers are right and everyone else is <laughs> wrong, if like you know that those are big red flags for me. Yeah. Um, I mean, does what you're saying actually line up with the Word of God? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's harder to tell because of context or things like that. But sometimes it's really easy. I'm shocked at what is passed off as good teaching at times when it <laughs> it really doesn't take that much investigation to go, this, this isn't even biblical. This is yeah. not even in the Word of God anywhere. Yeah, yeah. But it is very catchy. It's tweetable. It's quotable. Yeah. It feels good. So, yeah. Second opinions, chapter three. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So, when you, Todd, you mentioned about a person who um, is always right or like a know-it-all. Um, what is it about this person that triggers that red flag for you? Like, so, for instance, is it censorship of dissenting opinions? Or is it, like, so if a person has an open door all the time, like, hey, if you, if you disagree or you want to push back, because... I like teachers that speak with authority, sure. that kind yeah. of declare as if they know exactly what they're mm-hmm. talking about. Um, those teachers tend to um, make me feel less dubious, or dubious isn't the right word, less anxious about um, whether or not they actually know what they're doing. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I like to see that kind of authoritative teaching, um, but I agree that there's got to be certain things that you, certain caveats that you always leave open, right? Is that how you do it? Yeah. Uh, I don't know that I have a specific example, um, but I have encountered over the years and or seen over the years, um, you know, pastors or leaders whose response to any kind of pushback or question or whatever it, the default is always to go to well. The enemy's just attacking us, you know, and like you know, and touch we're gonna not, touch not God's touch anointed. not God's anointed, yeah. and we're gonna keep pressing forward, and, you know, and like, um, and rather than being willing to have a a dialogue or a discussion and defend their position, even mm-hmm. man, if like if they are confident in their position, be willing to defend it and yeah. talk about it and have a discussion. But whenever it's just that kind of uh, you don't have a right to question me thing, mm-hmm. that's that's really problematic and really is indicative a lot of times of of abuse by you know of that authority and power in the pulpit. And it's not even uh, and this is. It's more visible in big churches than it is in small churches, I think, just because they have a bigger platform and more eyeballs are on them. But I think this is a problem in small churches just as much as it is big churches Mm -hmm. where a pastor can have a maybe be a a good communicator because there are some great preachers at smaller churches. So just because how many people show up is not indicative of 
um, the veracity of your preaching or mm-hmm. the, you know, authenticity or any, any the quality anyway. And, uh, but I think the opposite is true as well. I think, uh, you can have a strong personality and be a good communicator and still be a bad preacher mm-hmm. because it's not just about the style. And I think in, in Western culture, especially we over, we overvalue style and, um, skill and mm-hmm. we undervalue content and what is actually being communicated. And, um, and so I think but that can happen at a big church or a small church that we're a slick communicator, but we're not actually helping people understand and apply scripture, uh, grow in their faith, you know, things like that. And, uh, what Todd was describing, it can happen at a small church yeah. just as easily as a big church where mm-hmm. nobody can say no to us. You know, I'm the man of God, so you can't push back on me. You know, some of those kind of things. And I think if we don't want to be a false preacher, one of the best things we can do is have people in our lives, intentionally have people in our lives that can go, hey, you said that. What did you actually mean by that? Right. Mm-hmm. And it might be um, a staff member or a board member or your spouse or because Kim's pushed back on some things with me where she's, I've said something and she says, you said that, I need you to support that biblically. What does that mean? <laughs> like, oh, you're, you're just supposed to follow me blindly. You're my <laughs> wife. What are you talking about? So, but it's important to have those people because that keeps us from getting right. into that danger zone. Right. Yeah. So Mel, as the lead pastor, how, um, what are some things that you do to cultivate that readiness in people to give you pushback? I think one of the things I have to do is give permission and then remind them that they have permission. I had a staff member in my office yesterday and I asked for feedback and I said, I'm, I'm asking you for feedback again. Tell me what you thought about this. I need your help. How could I have done that better? Um, and so I think it's kind of like the couple who she said, you never tell me I you love me. And he said, well, I told you when we got married and I'd tell you if something changed, if right? changes, I'll let yeah. you know. Yeah, and so I think sometimes we go, well, I invited feedback 12 years ago and nobody gives me any. I think you have to continue to go, hey, I still need your feedback. Hey, how do you feel about that? I communicated this this way. Did you feel like that was, um, you know, did the way I I communicated that hold fidelity to the gospel or was that more my opinion? Or And even for me, um, when I'm preaching, there are times that I will note, hey, I need, this is, this is my opinion on this. You know, this isn't gospel or this is extra biblical, but let me just tell you what I've seen or what I've read, uh, just to help draw the line between uh, what is gospel truth and what is maybe my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think we just continually invite people into that. And if we don't, then it's easy for us to drift. Yeah. When Jesus talks about the, the tree and its fruit, when it comes to, uh, trying to test prophets, um, what, what exactly do you think he's referring to with fruit? Like, so the reason I'm asking is I, I could see from a preaching perspective that it could be tempting to use something like that to justify bad teaching. Because if you have 2000 people in mm-hmm. attendance every weekend, it's like, well, I have lots of fruit. So, right. and so what do you think he's pointing to mostly? Is it more like the fruit of the spirit in the person's life and their character? Is, is it, uh, you know, a a vibrant faith community surrounding that teacher. Is that kind of what he's aiming at? And when he's talking about the testing them by their fruits. I mean, I think, I certainly think that's part of it. I mean, you know, what we see Jesus referring to there, you know, he's, he's referring specifically to, you know, to the Pharisees and to the teachers of the law and the fact that what they were replicating was not people who were, in love with God, right? Mm-hmm. But people who are in love with their ability to keep the law, they were, they were self-righteous in their response. They were, you know, and so whenever we see that, whenever we see people who are kind of replicating this, I'm holier than the rest of you, and here's why, um, that's, I think that's part that's part of what Jesus is talking about there. You'll, you know, that's the fruit that they're bearing. They're not bearing the fruit of, like, mm-hmm you know, humility and, and deep abiding love for God and the exaltation of, of the redemption that Christ has purchased for us, they're, what they are replicating is this, like, look at how good we are thing. And that, mm-hmm. you know, no matter what that's packaged like, at the end of the day, that's a false gospel. Yeah. 
Well, and when you're talking about fruit, and Todd alludes to this, but it's we measure the wrong fruit and like it's, you know, attendance or whatever it might be both ways. I think it's easy to go, man, we're not very, very fruitful because we don't have very many people, but it really does come back to like, what is really, what is God really asking us to produce in our lives mm-hmm. and in our churches? And, um, how are we stewarding it in a way that's going to bring pleasure to him ultimately, where he's mm-hmm. going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, you know? Um, and so that's something um, you know, I, I was talking to our, our youth pastor uh, recently, and I told him, I said, I'm much less concerned with how many kids you get on a Wednesday night to youth than I am with how many kids are we sending to Bible college or getting into ministry or because it's easy to measure the wrong thing and go, oh, hey, it's very fruitful. We have X amount of kids on a Wednesday night in our youth service, but you can fake that junk. You can yeah. have big mm-hmm. events and gimmicky things to get kids in the door, but it's not ultimately producing life change. So I, I don't know if there's a hard and fast answer. I just think we've got to be careful not to measure fruit the way the world does and really ask like, what brings pleasure to God in, yeah. in this? Yeah, I like humility. I think Todd, what you led off with is mm-hmm. a, a really good marker. I mean, one of the things um, I on her CLE like three days ago published an essay explaining why she's a Christian now, like she had converted to Christianity. And she's an interesting case because she started out uh, with the Muslim Brotherhood, and let me hit pause. Are you going to put the? Would you put a link to this in the show notes? Sure, so yeah. people can see it if they mm-hmm. want to. Yeah, yeah, I can do that. And um, what's what's interesting about her is she's led, from what I can tell, an examined life her whole life. Like mm-hmm. she's always been a thinking person, and so she um, she left the she left Islam and she left it in a big way. Like yeah. they're they're coming after her. <laughs> like she, and. <laughs> Uh, and she lived, I think she lived 20 years as an atheist. And now that she's a Christian, what she points out is, is what she points out, um, as the biggest difference between Islam and Christianity is compassion on sinners and humility for believers. Mm-hmm. And she said, it's not like that with Muslims. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's interesting, Todd, that you bring it up in regards to false teachers and good teachers, because that is really the case. It seems like that's a striking difference for a lot of people is whether or not a person's humble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so. and, well, and it should be super convicting for us when humility is not what followers of Jesus are most known for in yeah. our culture. Um, it should It should cause us to have pause. It should cause us to reflect. It should cause us to repent. Um because I don't know that there's anything that's more Christ-like than a humble heart. Mm-hmm. And and what I do know is that God is very clear in the Scriptures that He opposes the proud. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't want to be in a place where God is actively opposed to me. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that would be very difficult. Um, okay, so have you encountered more false teachers inside the church or outside the church? And has this changed in the last 20 years of your ministry, would you say? I would say sheer numbers, there are more false teachers outside of the church. Yeah. I would say in terms of damage and impact, yeah. the false teachers inside the church are much more damaging. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is yeah, that, for sure. Is, okay. and, well, and I think there is, I think there, um, I don't know that there are more, there probably are, but I don't know that for sure that there are more today, but they have a greater platform today because of the rise yeah. of the internet and because yeah. of social media, there are people that could have, um, there are people that in their community could have never built a platform like they have because some of their views are so niche that they could not have gotten people in their community to go, yeah. yep, we're with you. But when you platform them on the World Wide Web, now there are enough people that they can get a following, yeah. that they can be a voice of influence. And um, and so that's part of the problem with the internet is that it's giving a greater platform to people that maybe shouldn't have one. Right. Um, and, uh, and so I do think there are more, there's more influence from false teachers within the church than there probably was, or a, a broader influence from false teachers in the yeah. church than there was 20 years ago. Which is honestly why I think it is, it, the local church is probably more important and vital than it ever has been for that very reason. People need to right. be connected to a local body 
that is has a high fidelity to uh, to the scriptures, mm-hmm. to the gospel, and to historic Christianity. Like those are super important things, um, and I believe that the local church is probably more important now than maybe it ever has been. Certainly yeah. not less. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting how you say that the impact and the damage of false teachers is worse inside the church generally. And do you think that's because um, for Christians, the scripture functions kind of like a walled garden in a way, and that um, if a person, even if they're quite eloquent and well thought out, if they're teaching something that's just not found in the Bible, Christians by and large as a heuristic can just say, I'm dispensing with that, I don't need that. But then when you have someone in the church especially if who's on the team they're wearing the jersey mm-hmm. yeah. yeah then it's like they're inside the uh-huh. the fort and then you have a question the question instead of whether or not this is in the bible the question mm-hmm. becomes whether or not we should read the bible this way yeah and then that's yeah. a much much harder question yeah. for the congregation to sort through yeah the yeah. fox is in the hen house as it were yeah and so when you have someone like that in your church as as a lead pastor, what do you do about that? So if you have a, a false teacher in your church, or if you have somebody who's listening to a false teacher in your church? Yeah, I mean, I think it could probably go both ways. Like you say you have a false teacher, and maybe this isn't somebody you hired. Maybe yeah. it's just somebody who's like risen up uh-huh. as an influencer in the congregation, mm-hmm. and they're teaching something that is um, false. Or it could be, yeah, someone who's listening to a false teacher and then proselytizing that message yeah. within the congregation. What's, what's your uh, action? How would yeah, you we've, move? we've had some situations like this in the past where somebody really has a, has a uh, draw to certain teachers that, um, and not that I just don't like very much or I don't like their style, but I feel like doctrinally they are in error. So we've had some of those where we've had to sit down with them and go, hey, you've been teaching this in your small group, and we're concerned about this. Can we talk about it? Yeah. Um, and you know, here's what we teach, and here's what they teach, and here's why we think there's error there. Um, we would prefer if you don't teach things that are in opposition to what we feel like the Word of God says. And you know, it doesn't mean you can't listen to them. If you want to, that's fine. But... Um, We're asking you not to lead other people in that direction, though. So we've had that, and I don't think I don't think we've had anybody that I can remember has left over it Mm -hmm. that it's been that big a disagreement. But um, but we've definitely had that conversation. And um, before, let me think. I guess it was before I came. There was um, like a local minister who didn't have a church, but he preached some, and he would come here sometimes, Mm. and. and so they they asked him to to cease and desist basically because uh, he had floated in for a while and and were like yeah this isn't working out this isn't because he was starting to build a, a following or trying to build a following mm-hmm. um, and so I think just being direct and honest and here's here's one of the hard things about that is sometimes especially especially if you're a smaller church and you need people you need resources you need good leaders. Uh, the temptation is to overlook some things and go, well, but they could be an asset in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, but we got to be real careful about letting them, you know, overlooking things that we know are, yeah. are probably not going to work, not, you know, keep us from walking together just because there's utility in them being part of our team. Well, like, well, they could really take a load off me in this way or they could help me in this way. So there's a danger there. Um, but I would encourage pastors and leaders to take a hard look at the people that are influencing your, yeah. your people. Yeah, that brings up another, I think, interesting question to unpack, which is say you have someone who's part of your team or is in your congregation who's a good teacher. Um, but they do start to snowball like a following, like their small group gets bigger and then it becomes, mm-hmm. you know, something more like a, a large gathering. Um, I've heard churches in the past resist this kind of thing. Like, again, let's assume that the teaching is congruent and it's mm-hmm. good. Um, the, there is a fear of generating a church within a church. And at first, my thought on that was, well, that's just a dumb fear. Like, why are we afraid of that? Why, why not just have all the rotation that we could possibly have of good teachers? But then I start, as I continue to meditate on it, 
is there a, a benefit that comes with clear leadership in the church that, that you lose if you have someone who comes up and is like a rising star and starts to generate like a church within a church? Uh, how would you navigate those waters? Because I don't think this is exclusive to big churches either. Yeah, I think this is, might even be more of a vulnerability for small churches because, you, you know, you, you have relational equity with the people who are in the congregation already because mm-hmm. there's like less, peop- less people to meet and to well, get to know. Well, it, it takes fewer people to build a critical mass too. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're in a church of 60 and I've got a group of 10, that's a significant group. Yeah. Um, whereas in a large church... If you've got a thousand people on a weekend and you've got a group of ten, that is relatively speaking mm-hmm. less less impactful. Right. So yeah. yeah, I do think the impact can be more difficult in a smaller church. Yeah. So is it Todd? Is this kind of on the teacher to the teacher who's not the lead pastor to uh, make sure that the communication is clear that they're not the leader of the church? Like if if this happens in a church do you just shut down the the other teacher or like the teacher who's not the lead pastor? Right. I, I don't, I don't think that's your first response. Yeah. I mean, I think you need to, to ask some clarifying questions. You need to find out exactly what's going on. You need to do your best to understand the heart of the person. You know, if this, if, if this gathering is growing, you know, you need to find out, okay, well, what, What's your what's your end goal here, right? What are you what are you working toward? Why you know, um, can we you know can we work together? Is this or is this you know? So like if if their goal is to build a large gathering, well that can be problematic, right? Because well, then <laughs> is their goal then to then you know split mm-hmm. off and do something else? Um, are they really seeking to disciple people? If so, that d- usually isn't as effective in large gatherings. And so if the goal is discipleship, then we need to find out, figure out ways to break this into smaller groups again so that we can, you know, so are we raising up other leaders? You know, if there's a, there's a whole lot of factors there. I think there comes a point at which you have to go, Hey, this is not okay. You know, this, this has become divisive rather Mm -hmm. than helpful in terms of our local body. And so, you know, uh, what that point is necessarily. I don't know that, that, that you can determine that without some consistent engagement with. Maybe whenever the influential teacher who's not the lead pastor starts to get dragged into leadership decisions just because just by mandate of the, of the Mm -hmm. congregation. And so they're just like, okay, well, we want to, uh, say we want to get an LED wall. Well, let's ask Mel, and then let's also ask Todd. Like, and yeah. whereas there should just be like a, and then yeah. So the influential teacher would say, "No, I'm not going to speak into that. Like, that's not my lane yeah. or whatever." Right. And so I could see a way to solve it. Yeah, like kind of how you guys are saying. Well, from a and from a senior pastor perspective, uh, one of the things we got to be careful about is is, and I would ask this question to myself if I was uncomfortable with a group like that. Um, am I uncomfortable because of my own insecurity or am I uncomfortable because there is something spiritually at work here mm-hmm. and, and try to ask that with just as much ruthlessness as I can. Is this really about me and feeling like, Oh no, I need all the, all the affection and all the attention and all the, I need that for myself. Right. Cause if it is, then you could probably dismiss it at that point and go, Nope. Okay. God's working in me to. Mm-hmm. you know, help me be more humble and, you know, become a better leader. And, um, and one of the things we say, or I say here a lot is I don't want to be our, everybody in my church. I don't want to be their favorite pastor. I want people to love Todd a lot because mm-hmm. what that means is, um, I mean, it's multiple reasons, but one of them is, um, if everybody loves me the most, they're going to expect me to do every hospital visit and they're going to mm-hmm. expect me to be at every graduation. And every, mm-hmm. every time there's an issue, they're expect me to show up and yeah. I can't. So I want them to have Todd or pastor Dick or Gil mm-hmm. or Steph right. or right. Kim or whoever, um, just from a functionality perspective. And part of that too, honestly, is a discipline for my own heart. Um, cause when I'm celebrating them, it makes my heart, point people in their direction. Yeah. Even though yeah. my heart naturally wants to go, no, no, you need me. I'm, I'm the leader. 
And so part of that is just a discipline of my own heart yeah. to make myself do that um, because I know I know my flesh. Yeah, that's good. And I think it's important to how you pointed out that um, if a leader's not delegating in that way, then you stand a real, the congregation stands a real risk of not taking advantage of the depth of pastoral yeah. ability that's in the, the community. Yeah. And so that's all very good, I think. So let's switch gears to ritual. Uh, ritual is interesting to me. Um, I want to know what the role of ritual is in the Christian life. So sometimes I think that I should do nothing unless I can do it authentically. And then other times I think that fake it till you make it is a method for allowing yourself to be called to a higher way of living. Um, so I want to know, is there utility in ritualizing behaviors and perspectives you'd like your church to develop? So you think about like, I, I want these people to be this way. Mm -hmm. So should I institute a ritual to bring them there? Or is there a different course of action? Hmm. And then I want to know like how you guys use rituals in your own life if you do at all. Well, I would start just by saying that I think ritual is extremely important mm -hmm. in, in not just not just in terms of Christians. I mean, people by and large are driven by ritual. Uh, it thanksgiving for example is a ritual for our country right uh that 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 has a significance for us if done rightly right it's not just it's not just an excuse for us to eat a big meal right mm -hmm. the point is like that we stop and we pause and we reflect on what we have to be grateful for and what it, you know the blessings that we have received and all you know so so it has function and purpose for us in specifically in terms of Christianity I mean there are there are rituals that Christ himself instituted the ritual of baptism the ritual of mm -hmm. you know communion or the Lord's Supper right those things that uh, that cause us to remember that give us pause to reflect that help us to stay in touch with the gospel with the truth of what our salvation is rooted and grounded in with all of these things that they are memorials for us that that uh, if done rightly and done regularly help to conform us to the image of Christ mm -hmm. and so in that way they're extremely important um, and and you know, I mean, it's like it's like exercise, and I mean, the Apostle Paul even uses this analogy, right? He says, "I discipline my body like an athlete, so that after I preach, I myself might not be disqualified." And so, there, these things have a lot of importance for us. The idea of habit and ritual, and you know, and so they are they are part of what helps to conform us to the image of Christ. Now, when when the when we when the when the coin flips, so to speak, and we see the ritual as the thing rather mm -hmm. than the spirit mm -hmm. of God at work in and through those things, then we get the cart before the horse. And so we have to always stay in touch with the the fact that it is the spirit of God in us who is doing the forming. Like things that are formed do not form themselves; they are being formed. Mm -hmm. Right. So I am being formed by the spirit of God. The means that God has chosen to accomplish that are tied inextricably to ritual. Mm -hmm. And so in, a, in, in, a, in an act of obedience, I engage in those things in faith that God is working in them. Does that make, is that helpful? Yeah, well, I, so it seems to me that Christians need to become comfortable with the feeling of imposter syndrome like in their entire walk, right? Because they're always aiming higher than they're currently positioned. Mm -hmm. And so there's going to be like the uh, analogy that you drew with Thanksgiving is a, a good one because Thanksgiving gives us a reason to be civil with people we might not like um, <laughs> other than just being civil with them. Like yeah. you could argue that we should just be civil with them. So imagine you really don't like your in-laws, um, which, you know, I'm sure there's someone listening that that's true of. At Thanksgiving, you you try not to descend into chaos and into a fight because it's Thanksgiving. Like mm -hmm. the, the sentiment is, well, let's just not do this on Thanksgiving. So right. the to honor the office of Thanksgiving, yeah, yeah, yeah. we bring ourselves into better behavior. And so if, that might be an example of how something that's like a tradition or a ritual, even if we're just faking it, we are actually coming into better behavior, and that mm -hmm. might have some beneficial fruit, you know, just from the practice of it. Well, and I think. 
you know, churches like ours, we tend to um, downplay the value of ritual uh, in a in a formal setting. Um, so when we think of ritual, a lot of times we default to liturgical churches and yeah. their style, and um, and that one is better than the other, or anything like that. But really, uh, what Todd said is accurate. That the ritual, when the ritual becomes more important than why we're doing the ritual or what it's doing in us. Uh, then that's a problem. And the difference between a ritual and a routine is really just in, intentionality. Um, am I am I being intentional about what we're doing um, so that it's not just what we do? It's not just a habit I'm in. Well, I just do this. It's muscle memory, but there's no value in it. There's no redemption in it. There's no life in it. Um, but even at Summit, I mean, there's things we do that are rituals. And I mean, I've talked about it before, but at the end of every service, I'll say, mm-hmm. hey guys, I love you more than you know. I'm so glad I get to be your pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's a ritual. And if I didn't do it, I know for sure that I would have somebody say, hey, what happened? Do you not love us anymore? Because mm-hmm. you didn't say it today. Yeah. You know? um, but there are lots of things like that within the context of our corporate worship that we do, that we go, oh, hey, here's where we pray together, or here's where we, whatever it is. Um, and it can be just a routine unless it's intentional, unless we're going, Hey, how are we, um, connecting the body to Christ through what we're doing? And so I think there is a lot of power in it, even for churches like ours. I mean, I had somebody in our freedom class this week, actually, who, because we were talking about part of what we talked about was the importance of repentance as a, a, a a lifestyle, right? That we are that we live a life of repentance, that we are continually mm-hmm. laying down our sin, repenting of our sin. And and this person spoke up and said, you know what, that makes sense. I never understood why in every service Mel asks us to pray along with the people who raise their hands. Mm-hmm. And they go, now I get it, because that means that that's an opportunity for us then to, to, to repent again and say, God, again, I give my life to you afresh. Mm-hmm. I commit myself to you. Like, yeah. Those are important things mm-hmm. and they're powerful things as long as they remain tethered to the gospel. Yeah. yeah. It's when we divorce them from the gospel and they just become routines mm-hmm. that that they lose their, their power and their effectiveness in our lives. Yeah, and the, the practice of honoring the... Well, I want to be careful I say this. Honoring ritual, because we're honoring God, the practice of honoring ritual seems to help us resist the boredom associated with repetition. Yeah. And... I think the boredom associated with repetition can be quite dangerous for a church because this is why they stop having like sections of the service dedicated to giving or sections Mm -hmm. of the service dedicated Mm -hmm. to whatever, because the staff and the pastor have heard the thing 10,000 times. Uh They're just like, well, we could probably cut this. But for a person who, someone who's first coming to church, that might be the most important part of the service for them. It's because they're hearing it for the first time. And not only so at summit not only do we keep doing those things but we we keep doing those things with an eye for excellence mm-hmm. and it's because we understand that you know even though we've heard it a thousand times someone might be coming in and if we're mm-hmm. just kind of like you know going through oh we'll get through this part so we can get to the sermon or get through this part um we we caution ourselves against that because I, and i think that th- understanding the importance of ritual is part of that caution. That well, and sense. we all go, I think we all find ourselves in seasons like that where it becomes routine. Um, and so, I mean, it has to be something that we are consciously um, wrestling against as individuals. But, but then I think for us as pastors and leaders, it's important for us to be aware of the fact that, that people are going through seasons like that. And so then we should be asking ourselves, okay, what can we do that will help people to see this in a different light today, right? That, that maybe just if, if we just change this just a little bit uh, so that it, it helps people to see it with fresh eyes, can we re-infuse meaning for them? Can we, re- mm-hmm. you know, can we help reconnect them to the importance of why we do this? Uh, and, and I think that 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 can be really effective. And I think it's really important for us as leaders to, to, to lean into those kinds of things um, and, and find creative ways to, you know, not, not to change the, the, the liturgy, obviously, but to, you know, maybe change the way people see it. Like, it's like when you, uh, when you hear a really good cover of a song 
that's so good that the cover itself almost becomes its own thing mm-hmm. and you have a new appreciation for the song you know i think that's the kind of thing that i'm talking about like the the meat of what's there man we we have to guard the gospel but if we can like just change the way people see it somehow you know it can help them see it with fresh eyes and it can yeah. reinvigorate and reignite something in their heart that's really powerful yeah i think uh didn't jimmy eat world do a version of smooth criminal and like for the longest time i didn't realize that that's a michael jackson song right like, that start? yeah actually i think it was alien ant farm but... a- a- okay yeah. yeah alien ant farm yeah so we're, we're for those old. of you who are just screaming into your into your <laughs> podcast right now yeah. it was alien ant farm <laughs> well Thanks, todd, todd you and i are older than michael so i was thinking um of uh leonard cohen um, hallelujah, hallelujah, Jeff Buckley. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, like um, yeah, Leonard Cohen's version and Jeff Buckley's version were a little different. Yeah. But Jeff Buckley made his money off that one. Well, that's like yeah. there there are people who don't know that knocking on heaven's door wasn't a Guns N' Roses tune. Yeah. Right? I was they... so disappointed when I found out. I like, Wait, what, what is Bob this? Bob Dylan. Oh, this isn't even... <laughs> Come on now. Yeah, but so like they that, that cover was so good that they own the song. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, yeah, that's we're going to turn this into a music podcast. Right, thing. all of a sudden. It's, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, Todd, I'm so glad you're here to correct my errors. <laughs> um, okay, so let's shift gears again, and I want to talk a little bit about the golden rule, and I want to talk about whether or not the golden rule can be corrupted based on a person's cultural context. So the golden rule um, obviously is you know, treat others as you want to be treated, and so. I want to know, does that, if the cultural context becomes sufficiently deviant, does it mean that it's no longer enough for pastors to encourage congregations to love their neighbor as themselves? Or do you think that loving God will define what it means to love your neighbor? So, so there's a couple of different doors open Mm -hmm. here. Um, But it seems to be that just the basic principle of treat others as you want to be treated or love your neighbors as yourself becomes insufficient if the morass that you're floating in is so bad that you no longer know up from down or down from up go for it mel i mean um so I, i tend to be more pragmatic than philosophical and so and you could look at this question a couple different ways, but I think for for me that the golden rule becomes even more important to me in uh, in cultures that are devoid of a moral north star. Um, I think in those kind of cultures, the golden rule is a differentiation in such a way it's so countercultural that it does bring attention to the gospel. It does bring attention to that. And I think um, the golden rule seems to be, if this is, makes sense, mm. less important in moral context. Um, so think about like uh, friends that are missionaries to um, Utah where uh, you know Mormonism dominates. And being kind and being generous and being loving uh, is lef- less of a differentiation in that culture because that is uh, a prevailing sentiment of mm-hmm. so they're still Mormons are still going to hell and if you're a Mormon and you're listening to this we can talk about this another time but <laughs> um, but Mormons are still going to hell but they're they're they have a lot of biblical virtues and so the golden rule in itself um, in, in some ways is insufficient to differentiate between authentic gospel living and um, and just morality in the culture. So that's where I think in a culture that is s- selfish, that is um, carnal, depraved, that's where I think it makes the most sense because then there is true differentiation between what living according to, you know, walking with Christ looks like as opposed to uh, living by my own standards. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I'm kind of curious, and this might be hard to think of like off the top of your head, but um, what are some other heuristics that 
you you've used in the church or that people have brought to you. Mm-hmm. So we think we can think of the golden rule as like a heuristic, like mm-hmm. an easy way of understanding, okay, I should just be nice to people and yeah. like love them as myself. Right. And that covers so much of the other principles in scripture. Um, what are some other kind of heuristics or, or bumper sticker slogans that people have brought to you and said, Hey, I've been trying to implement this in my life and it's not working or things aren't going the way that I want. Or are there some other things that you've, you've used as a, in the pastoral role that you've used as a heuristic. So you've used as like a simplified version, but you've found that you've had to explain it a lot more than what maybe you initially thought because it just makes sense to you. And again, it, like that, that, I realized that question. I just thought of that question now, yeah. so it might be hard to kind of come up with off the top of your head. I, I think, I mean, there are some, I mean, Todd, you can speak into this. We've talked about this some. There's some that are easy ones like um, Philippians 4.13. I right, can do all right. things through mm-hmm. Christ who strengthens me. Well, we've just lifted it out of context and made it a bumper sticker, and that's not really what it meant. It doesn't matter. I'm, I'm going to go run the Pittsburgh Marathon this weekend. Did you train? Yeah. Nope. Nope. But Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Like, well, I don't know if that really means what you think it means. And so we have to walk some of that out with people and say, hey, I mean, it just made me think of, um, of um, Princess Bride. <laughs> yeah. Inconceivable. Yeah. I, I do not think it means what you think it means. Um, but so I think there are times we have to walk that out for people and go, okay, hey, this looks a little different than you think it does. The application of this is different. The context of this is different. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question or if yeah. that's what you're getting at. No, it does. And I think that, you know, this is something that the church is probably going to face increasingly in the coming years because people who have nefarious motives from outside the church or from churches that are reprobate will use certain catchphrases from scripture to justify an unbiblical aim. Mm -hmm. So Jesus dines with sinners is a pretty popular one Mm -hmm. um, here because I've heard people use that as, okay, well, if sinners are good enough for Jesus, they're good enough for me. And so therefore, (laughs) you know, I'm just going to affirm what they're doing and hang out with them and do all the things that they're doing um, because Jesus would do that. And so that's, but Jesus wouldn't do that. That's not what that's, Mm -hmm. Right. teaching and right. so um yeah i don't know where, where i don't know if there's a question there but i think that uh you know what, what do you do you think about that when you're i'll ask this two two different ways do you think about that mel when you are uh going through like certain sermon series you might preach like do you watch the culture and respond to it or do you think that's a bad way to develop your sermons i think um Okay, so my, my litmus is uh, my litmus test is this: is the is the culture inf- infecting our church sufficiently that I need to address this with our church? That's that's kind of the primary question because it's it's easy, and I talk to pastors all the time that see something going on in the culture and they will do a sermon series on it. Mm-hmm. And well, maybe maybe you <laughs> should do that. Um, or maybe that's an excuse for you to share your opinion about a hot topic of the day and use, use scripture to support it. Um, and so was that hateful? No, no, no. Okay. I was, I was, I was laughing because I was, I was going to go, I was going to double down, but I'm not going to <laughs> look at you. Good job, Todd. Well done. And so I think we've got, we've got to be careful about that, but I will, usually I will say, Hey, if this is, imp- if this is impacting people in our congregation, this cultural issue, then yes, we have to address it. And then there are some moral biblical issues that I want to equip our people to be able to speak into in our culture. Um, And so there are some things that I will say, hey, this isn't necessarily in our church, but people in our church are dealing with this. So we need to address it. They need to know where we stand. They need to know how to be able to speak into some of this. Um, And so I don't know if that's too broad a question, but no, what's going on in our culture is not a a filter that I use when I'm prepping a sermon on a normal weekend um, because I want to equip our people to minister in the culture, but I mean, gosh, we are not of this world. We mm-hmm. are, we are travelers. We are pilgrims. Yeah. We are, and so we don't want to become acclimated to the culture. Um, we want to understand that we are citizens of heaven, and that God has called us to recruit as many people as we can to join us on our journey. But 
ultimately our our goal as Christians and as the church, in my opinion, is not to shape this culture into the image of Christ. Um, it's to, well, let me back up. It's to work for that. Like we want to see everyone redeemed. We want mm-hmm. to see our culture redeemed, but it's not going to be fully redeemed until the new heavens and the new earth. Right. And so that's where we have to understand, hey, um, the next presidential election uh, you know, is not the most important presidential election of our lifetime. So <laughs> we don't have to have, um, you know, efforts in our lobby to get people registered to vote. And mm-hmm. if you decide to do that, that's fine. Yeah. But for us, that's where I go. No, I, I want to have a, a big enough field of vision where I understand the perspective that yes, what we're doing is important, but what is eternal is way more important. Yeah. So you guys would have more, you're more likely probably to minister to the consequences of local um, disruptions Mm -hmm. than you are something that's more of a global Mm -hmm. scale. So for instance, if the school board changes so much that um, now it becomes a question of whether or not Christians should pull their kids out of school. Yeah. um, That's something that that's Mm -hmm. kind of a question you would try to deal with, Mm -hmm. with people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I tend, I tend to think that if I am, preaching the gospel faithfully, Mm -hmm. that scripture itself significantly addresses the issues of culture, and more importantly, the issues that are in my heart. And if if I am being conformed to the image of Christ, if the people in our church are being conformed to the image of Christ, then our influence on culture will be Christ-like, you know? And so, like, I don't have to uh, as a manner of as a matter of habit mm-hmm. get up and rail against culture all the time now again like like mel said there are times when it's when it's having an impact on our on our city or on our congregation to such a degree that we have to address it from a biblical perspective and mm-hmm. talk about it but if if as a matter of habit that is the aim and the focus of my teaching then then I'm probably veering off of the gospel, unfortunately, right? Yeah. And, and that, that can have detrimental effects. Mm-hmm. And and what we want is people to be conformed to the image of Christ, right. because that is the leaven that will then influence culture. Right. And if you're sufficiently reactionary, then pretty soon you're not drafting any of your own sermons anymore. You're just responding mm-hmm. to things. And yeah. so then so that puts somebody else in control of what it is that you're trying to do. And so well, and then you're in danger bad. of lifting things out of context, which kind of coming back full circle mm-hmm. on this yeah. conversation, like even with the golden rule, yeah. if I lift that out of context and I don't understand that Jesus is talking about the kind of radical love that loves your enemies, mm-hmm. that it's within the context of that, that he's saying, treat others the way you want to be treated. What he's saying is you want grace for yourself, yeah. but you aren't willing to give it to other people. Mm-hmm. Like, and if you want to love like me, if you want to love like God, then you love your enemies. You love the people who aren't loving you in return. That always has application in every cultural mm-hmm. understanding. But if we just go, hey, treat everybody the way you want to be treated, well, yeah, that's subject to all kinds yeah. of mess. Yeah. yeah, let's talk about that because every so often um, I start to feel like I'm maturing as a Christian and that I'm getting better, <laughs> and then I run into a problem that reminds me of uh, just how woefully inadequate I am. And one of them is loving my enemies and is um, extending grace and forgiveness in particularly extreme situations. And so what would you say to, you're presiding over a church and someone in the congregation, first of all, do you think that there are levels to sin, like levels of severity to sin? Because I've heard some confusion on this from Christians. Like they'll say, oh, a sin is a sin is a sin is a sin. And I think what they mean to be referring to is that even the smallest of sins causes you to fall short of the glory Mm -hmm. of God. So therefore Mm -hmm. you're not entering heaven on your own merit. Mm -hmm. But that equality of sin doesn't seem, I don't think that that's referring to the severity of sins that you could do, like the, the degrees of depravity you could practice, right? Yeah, all sin, sin, in terms of their temporal impact, sins are different, right? And we even see that in terms of the the punishment or the red, you know, what, what happens in response to particular sins, right? So the more severe the impact on the community the more severe the the punishment for sin was mm-hmm. up to and including so like you know murder death penalty right um stealing your neighbor's 
cow, well, you have to pay back plus, right? Mm -hmm. So in terms of like the consequence in response to that action, our sins, certainly there are different consequences uh, temporally. Scripture also holds up to us, though, that if I've broken one law, I've broken all of the law. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of my guilt before God, my holiness, my righteousness before God, every sin is equal. Mm -hmm. In terms of its temporal impact and our, our response in the here and now, they are, they're drastically different. Mm-hmm. So t- there's degrees of severity with temporal consequences. What about spiritual consequences? Isn't it yeah, the case? I, I do think there are, and in Paul talks about, hey, sexual sin is different than other sins. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, I think there are, um, I think there are differences in how it affects us, how some sins affect us differently. I mean, physiologically, you know, um, talking about sexual sin, even like pornography and how it rewires our brain. And there are natural physiological consequences mm-hmm. for us when we are engaged in different kinds of sin than others. And so, yeah, I think there is a difference. Um, and the the challenge with this is, though, to make sure we are guarding our hearts against saying things like, well, it's just, this is just a little sin. It's not that big a deal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, or man, yes, I sin, but that one, that one that they committed is bad. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm okay because... And the issue really, what we've got to be careful about is to understand, um, and we might have talked about this in the last podcast, or maybe it was in Bible study I did. I don't even remember now. But understanding that when Jesus talks about cutting off our hand and gouging out our eyes, you know, to keep us from sinning, that's how seriously Jesus takes sin mm-hmm. in our lives. And if we are habitually sinning, no matter what it is, uh, Jesus said you're better off being blind or or crippled than you are um, continuing in that kind of sin. And so, so yeah, I do think there are different sins that affect us differently, that affect mm-hmm. our community differently, that affect our world differently. Uh, but we've got to be real, real careful about disregarding yeah. the little sins. So I have two questions off of this. One, super pragmatic. One, a little more philosophical, and we can end on this. Um, does the varying degree and severity of sin is that reflected in church policy and how a church should handle a sin in the congregation or should it be reflected if it's not um yes and no i mean uh and it depends on who, who the person in the congregation is and there's there's a whole bunch of factors and mm-hmm. how i think how you deal with that um based on what it is mm-hmm. who it is where it all that stuff matters because um you know if if you're a church with a smaller church with a solo pastor then it it may make sense to say hey there's this one single person that's influential in our church that i might have to address their their unrepentant sin from the platform for instance Mm -hmm. um but in our church i can't imagine a situation where i would ever address uh, a non board member or staff members sin from stage yeah um just because it's different context yeah uh and there are definitely some things that that i would not necessarily bring from the platform if i felt like it was um insufficiently grievous uh toward the kingdom or toward others um but i think the key with all of it is repentance is is the person is the the offending party are they repentant for their mm-hmm. behavior or not. And if they are, that's where you go. Okay. The whole, the whole equation changes. Um, and so I think that matters too. So it's not just what they did, but it's the posture of their own heart yeah, after they yeah. did it. It's interesting because, and I like what you're saying about, you have to take into account all of the circumstances and the nuance, because a lot of times when you hear about David and Bathsheba, they, they speak about David's sin as his, as his, um, um, actions with Bathsheba, Mm -hmm. which is his sin. But it seems to me that you could make the case that part of that same sin in the sight of God is his murdering of Uriah and his, the things that he did after the fact, because when, when Nathan confronts him about it, 
the story that Nathan tells seems to import the fact that he killed Uriah. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, how a person handles the sin in the aftermath, um, is part of the sin itself. And mm-hmm. so all of those things end up being taken into account when it comes to how the church would navigate that from a policy standpoint. So that's interesting. Well, and David and Bathsheba ended up being very public. Um, I mean, and there were ton- even though the posture of David's heart was repentant afterwards, there were still consequences for this. Yeah. His family was cursed essentially. Yep. Um, he had, Baby conf- dad. yeah, he had conflict within his family um, it, it's not a stretch to say his his conflict with Absalom was because of this this family absolutely curse on him. Um, you know, because God says, "Hey, there's going to be conflict in your family now because of what you have done. You well, have invited this in." Yeah, and I mean, you know, Solomon is is Bathsheba's second child, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Absalom, really, from a uh, you know, if we're going to say like firstborn, you know, mm-hmm. like age order kind of thing, direct lineage kind of thing, Absalom had the stronger claim to the throne. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but Solomon gets chosen, and that's part of, again, what results is that Absalom is jealous. Absalom is, you know, like, hey, this should be mine, and and then undermines David's authority and like in, you know ingratiates himself to the people and gets everybody behind him and rises you know there's a coup and there's all of that yeah is a response to David's you know taking of Bathsheba yeah okay so holding that in your mind holding the cascading consequences of David's sin with Bathsheba and the way he reacted to it in murdering Uriah holding that in your mind then also holding in your mind the principle of forgiving your brother 70 times seven. Um, how do you balance that tension when it comes to your own personal forgiveness of a particularly egregious sin of, of someone who has sinned in a way that is particularly damaging? Well, are you talking about forgiveness or are you talking about reconciliation? Uh, well, because to me, there's, there, there's a difference. Yeah. I'll ask a question. Does the 70 times seven principle imply reconciliation or is it just forgiveness? Well, in that situation, I think it's talking about a brother. You, you forgive your brother 70 yeah. times seven. So maybe, maybe it's implying mm-hmm. reconciliation, but here's for me, one of the things I live by, one of the things I have encouraged others in as well, is scripture is very clear. We have to forgive. There is, there is no wiggle room. There's no way around it. I have to forgive when I've been offended, when somebody has hurt me, whatever. I have to. But the forgiveness um, the forgiveness is for me. It, it actually heals me. Mm-hmm. It is not for the, the, the um, offend, offensive right. party. Uh, it is for my heart, to restore my heart to where I need to be with God. Um, but reconciliation is about me number one, forgiving, and then number two, being reconciled in relationship to the offending party. Mm-hmm. And that is not up to me. I don't get to decide that because, and and there's sometimes you can't be because what if you were in an abusive relationship? You right. have to forgive your abuser, Yeah. but is should you be reconciled to your abuser even if they want to be? Maybe not mm-hmm. because you don't want to go back into an abusive yeah. situation. So I think when it comes to forgiveness, a thousand percent yes. Mm-hmm. When it comes to reconciliation, that's where I'd say you've got to be more judicious about it mm-hmm. than just blindly going, yep, I need to be reconciled to them. Uh, maybe, yeah. but maybe not. It depends. And accepting that there are permanent, suppose, like what look like permanent temporal consequences to a person's sin is actually a biblical acceptance. Like it, we, we see precedent biblically. Yeah. And so when someone's like, well, if I have to reconcile, or I'm violating the scripture. It's like maybe not. Maybe, maybe that's not. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're not violating the scripture because we we just outlined the consequences of David's sin, and they yeah. certainly lasted the rest of his life. Yeah. And so there were reconciliations that could not be made. Mm-hmm. And you know, so yeah. So Todd, do you have anything on this in terms of? Uh... Well, I mean, yes. I don't. I don't know that I have anything to add from what Mel said. It's just the recognition. I would say this that. Reconciliation, I believe, always is the heart of God. It's the heart of the gospel, right? But reconciliation is only possible in light of repentance. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes that sometimes 
people don't aren't repentant, right? And so then reconciliation isn't possible because we live in a fallen world. Sometimes the person that you need to forgive is already dead and gone. So reconciliation will never be a possibility in that regard. But forgiveness is. Mm-hmm. And so we have to understand that those things are separate. And I think Mel's mm-hmm. exactly right on that. Yeah, that's a good place to wrap this up, guys. I really appreciate you for listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast. Mel, Todd, thank you guys for being on. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate it. Thanks for all of you that are listening. And uh, let me just throw this out there, too. If you enjoy this podcast, or if this is helpful for you in any way, do us a favor and share it on social media. Uh, Rate and review us. Let us know. That helps us. Only five stars. (laughs) Only five stars. That's right. If it's not a one... I mean, if it's a one, keep that to yourself. We, we, we like, uh, we like honesty, but not that much honesty. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That sounds good. Well, bye everybody. We'll see you in the next episode. If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcasts.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit podcasts can be found on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and we will see you in the next episode.